Let's pray before we begin this morning. King of heaven and earth, king of our hearts, we just say thank you uh, in this Christmas season as we're um, being re-reminded almost daily about the master plan of heaven to redeem the people of earth with the blood of a savior who came as a baby. What an amazing, glorious, um, just uh, overwhelming story Uh, that you would uh, see us in the midst of our messed up lives, our brokenness, our rebellion, and instead of wiping us out, you sent an ambassador who could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Not just a prophet, not just a high priest who had to make sacrifices for his own sins, but the son himself, the ultimate high priest, who need not make a sacrifice for himself, but could be the sacrifice for us. And we give thanks this morning uh, for him and all that he has accomplished. Grateful for the hope that we have not just in this life, but for the next as well. Grateful how he has, even in his death and resurrection, has brought such different, different people together and made us one. Uh, We're so grateful for that. Uh, This morning as we embark on a new uh, sermon series, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I pray that the enemy would be bound and that uh, we would have a a glimpse of what it's like to lean um, more and more into you, even in the area of relationships with other people, and that our eyes might be fixed on Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. If uh, you're married uh, this morning, um, you've probably had a little bit of experience with arguments. And just for the record, those of you who aren't married, Um, any illusions you have about finding a mate who's going to be problem-free and argument-free, run a thousand miles if you think you've met him or her because it's all a a lie. Um, You're going to get married and then you're going to argue. And sometimes the things that we argue about in marriage are of substance and sometimes they really, really aren't. Take a look. What's going on? Are you really mad? What's going on? What's going on is that you wouldn't dance. Everybody was dancing. The smoking baby guy, the screaming Mel Gibson guy, both of the situations. Oh, but not Mike. What are you talking about? I was out on the dance floor. Yeah, but you wouldn't dance. You just stood there like a maypole while I danced around you. You looked ridiculous. I looked ridiculous? What was this? I'm being a hippie. Please, that's your signature move. You break it out at every wedding we go to. I I don't get what's happened, Mike. I don't get what's happened to you. You used to dance before we got married. You really want to go down this road of things we used to do before marriage that we don't do after? I just thought that for one Halloween, we didn't have to do the same old thing sitting on the couch complaining about how kids are going to smash pumpkins. I thought for once we could put on some fringy vests and just have fun, but no. You're not fun, you're Mike. I'm fun, we just have a different definition of the word is all. You think adults dressing up and and bobbing for swine flu is fun. 
and I'm right. How many of you have ever said, you're married. How many of you ever said, I'm right to your mate? All right, how many of you have thought it? Yeah, amen. Get honest. You know, in, uh, in every state in the union, there are different criteria for uh, no-fault divorce. Uh, but most states have that you can get a no-fault divorce if you have irreconcilable differences or if you are incompatible. I don't know what the difference is between those two. Do you? And, and, and you know, you hear couples say, you know, we're, we're incompatible. I've had people sit in my office and say, we're incompatible. And I always wonder what they mean by that. You know, do they simply mean we're different by virtue of the way men and women are different? In other words, male and female differences. Do they mean by that that she likes Thai food and he likes Tex-Mex? Uh, do they mean by that that they have different priorities or different ways to go about child rearing? Do they mean by that that, that they have uh, a different uh, ways of handling money? Do they mean by that that they were raised in very different Homes, And so they're trying to bring very different viewpoints to, to this marriage when they say they're incompatible. And one of the things that I've found, and Pastor Charlie does most of the marriage counseling now, but over the years as I've watched husbands and wives in my office talk about their marriage frustrations, at the end of the day, it comes down to this. Why can't you just be more like me? If you were like me, we wouldn't have all these problems. If you, if you would dance crazy like me, or if you'd stand there like a maypole like me, we wouldn't have these problems. If, we could just, if you could just be like me, everything would be fine. We're starting a new series today called The Lost Art of Agreeable Disagreement. And it's not about marriage, but it could be. It really could be about pretty much any kind of relationship that we have with other people, how to be able to disagree, be disagreeing with somebody else in an agreeable way. Now, it tends to be that when we disagree with someone, we have, we have a couple of basic reactions uh, if, they're, if they're bad ones. Uh, one, we yell at each other, and that may be verbally face-to-face, -face, whether we're talking about marriage or a relationship with a friend or a former friend. Uh, it might be with a, uh, on social media and we're yelling in the comments section in response to uh, what people are saying on there. And we call, each, uh, call people names. You ever see the names that appear uh, sometimes on social media or online articles? I mean, it's, it's almost embarrassing. And especially if you find out they're a Christian and you know, some of the line to give themselves away. Say, you're a moron, uh, you're a hater, you have outdated ideas, you're brain dead, idiot. I mean, these are some of the nicer things that people say about each other. And then th that's kind of the in-your-face reaction to somebody that disagrees with you. The more typical one, I think increasingly, is for us just to retreat. We pull back into our uh, tribal groups where everybody's pretty much just like us because that's a far safer place to be. I want to be with people that think like I do, that, that uh, react to life the way I do. They have the same kind of politics that I do. They have the same likes and dislikes that I do. And so I want to ask you this morning, since this is an especially important thing for us as Christians to wrestle with, do you, for example, have friends 
or people that you regularly talk with who are not Christians? Do you have any gay friends? If you're a Republican, do you have any Democrat friends? If you're a Democrat, do you have any Republican friends? If you're a Caucasian, like most of us are, do you have any uh, friends of another uh, race or uh, linguistic group? Uh, if you're uh, African-American, if you're Hispanic, do you have uh, friends? Probably if you're in this church, you have Caucasian friends. But, but isn't it true that it's far more comfortable to withdraw to some group where I'm like pretty much everybody else in that group, where the, the waters are nice and calm and nobody's going to ruffle my feathers and I'm not going to ruffle anybody else's feathers. And we can talk about things that are important in the culture or in our lives and everybody else is going to say amen. That's, that's, that's far more comfortable. The problem with, for us who know Christ is that we have an inc- a, a call on our lives that demands that we mix it up with people who don't think like us that calls us to not just put up with people who think differently than us, but actually to go to people that think differently than us, to invade the world like the Lord Jesus Christ did, uh, to be able to relate warmly to people who are quite a bit different from us. So we're just going to look at these. We're going to look at this issue for the next three weeks. Today is mainly diagnostic. I want us to, we're going to look at Jesus' life and how he lived with other people uh, that thought differently from him. And so we want to ask the question of ourselves today, do, do I act like Jesus? And then next week we're going to talk about what sins or shackles keep, <clears throat> excuse me, keep us from relating to people who are different from us. And then the last uh, week, what steps can I take to be more like Jesus? I want you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2, uh, just a few verses, 15 through 17. the very early um, part of Jesus' ministry. He's just calling his disciples. And we're going to ask two questions uh, this morning. What was his first one is what was Jesus like? And just talk a little bit about these verses and then ask the question, what are American Christians like? And specifically, what am I like as an American Christian? Verse 15, Mark 2, later Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors, and those were the bad boys of the day, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. Now, it's hard to miss when you read the gospel accounts that Jesus was very comfortable being with those who were not his kind. Very comfortable being with those who were not his kind. And let's be honest, everybody was not his kind. Jesus was righteous. And I don't just mean he was a pretty good guy. He was absolutely, perfectly good. 
Jesus didn't cheat anybody. He didn't cheat on anybody. Uh, Jesus put all of his faith and confidence in his father, not in his money. Uh, Jesus didn't sleep around. Jesus didn't bet on the chariot races. Uh, Jesus didn't, uh, he didn't, he didn't lie. He didn't steal. I mean, he didn't even sass his mama. Nobody was like him. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, just as we are, but he was without sin. Wouldn't you love to have a friend like that in elementary school? And you're trying to get him to do the kinds of fun things that elementary school kids do. And Jesus is like, no, we shouldn't do that. Like, you're no fun. I need to find another friend. I mean, Jesus had nobody of his ilk. He had nobody who was like him. He was perfectly righteous. And yet he's hanging out with these disreputable sinners. Now, there's something that I think is a tension for us as Christians that's hard to find a balance in. It is for me anyway. The Bible, the New Testament says that we have a priority to other believers. We have a priority to the church. Um, Paul talks about, he says, we should care for the poor everywhere, but especially those who are in the household of faith. So there's a priority for the folks uh, who are here today. But if we just hang out with people that think like us and vote like us and talk like us and have the same priorities we do, we're going to miss the mission that Jesus Christ died to send us on. And that is to be, uh, encounter people who are very different from us. And so Jesus is eating a me- meals with people who are tax collectors and who are prostitutes and, and people who can't get along with uh, the, the folks that are the religious folks of their day. And the fact is, isn't it interesting? You think as perfect as Jesus was, and we mean perfectly perfect, that the crowd that he would be more, have been more comfortable with would be the folks that are trying to be really good, the Pharisees. The people who knew the scriptures inside out, upside down, backwards, almost as good as Jesus did. The people who kept the law religiously, uh, the po- people who were always correcting sinners, you would think that Jesus would be more drawn to them and more likely hanging out with them and more likely eating meals with them, but that wasn't the case. And somehow we have to find this tension here where we have this commitment to the brothers and sisters who are part of the body of Christ without taking ourselves off the board of the world. But somehow we have to find time in our schedule and, and find interest in our lives for the people that are still in need of Jesus because if we don't go to them, it will. Our neighbors talked about this before i'm like you know i i I find myself in this problem almost all the time because we have neighbors that aren't christians but you know who i spend my evenings with and my time with mostly you wonderful folks and and it's not it's not your fault because it's for me it's like oh now i have a night that i i don't have a meeting or i don't have a appointment and so forth I, get, I can just spend it with Betty, but that's a night that I don't invite my neighbor over. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? We have this priority for each other, and yet if we stop there and we don't carve out time in our schedules, and if we don't are intentionally reaching out to these people who are very different from us, we have missed the point of why Jesus saved us. Just didn't just save us so we could have this comfortable life with people who think like we do. Now, what's interesting is not only was Jesus comfortable being with these people, but these people seemed to be very comfortable with him. They flocked to him. Thousands upon thousands came to listen to him preach when he marched into Jerusalem the week before he was killed. And, and he came in as if he were a conquering king on the back of this donkey. The Bible says that crowds threw palm branches down in front of him. They threw their coats down in front of him on the ground for him to, to walk over. There were many, many people of all stripes who wanted to be with him. And they would invite him for these meals or tax collectors here and prostitutes at these meals. And presumably, if he's invited to the, to the dinners, he's not spending all his time confronting them about their sin. Did you ever think about that? I mean, if you're, if you're going to have a meal and invite somebody and you're going to expect them to be able to do small talk with you. They're, you're going to expect them to converse with you in an interactive way rather than lecture you and preach at you the whole time. I'm assuming because people would do this over and over again that Jesus didn't initially confront them about all their sins the first time they met. I mean, even, uh, even Pilate, when Jesus was in front of Pilate, do you remember um, Pilate said to him, uh, so you're the king of the Jews, I hear. And Jesus missed a golden evangelistic opportunity by simply saying, it's as you say. He didn't go any further than that. He could have gone everywhere with it. I mean, even the, the thief on the cross says, remember, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus doesn't say, well, you need to pray this prayer. You need to repent this way and you need to put this sin. He just says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now he had an advantage on us. He was, after all, the God come in the flesh. And so he knew the heart of the man. But you think about this, how rarely Jesus kind of gets in people's faces when they're, uh, he's confronted with their sin. John chapter 8, even this woman who was brought to Jesus who had committed adultery. And, and uh, you, you would think Jesus, the righteous preacher, would go after her for committing adultery. Instead, he writes in the ground a little bit. And then he stands up with these men who had brought her wanting to stone her according to the law that's what they should do and jesus says well if if there's someone here who's without sin you can throw the first stone and one by one the crowd evaporated and jesus simply says go and sin no more she says he says does anybody condemn you no they they don't well me neither go and sin no more think about that and sometimes for us, it's like if we get with somebody that we know has a particular sin problem or they're just hostile against God, you know, we kind of dive in with them the, right out of the chute. We want to hammer them with the four spiritual laws or the bridge illustration and so forth because after all, we might never get a chance again. But we're not the end of the story for people that need Jesus. We might be a drop in the bucket one point and somebody else is going to be another drop in the bucket. And sooner or later, they're going to come to Jesus. But it doesn't all hinge on us. Mike Huckabee was fond of saying, <clears throat> he'd introduce himself, he says, I'm Mike Huckabee, and he'd say, I'm a conservative and I'm a Christian, but I'm not. Does anybody know how he'd finish that? I'm not mad at anybody. 
Do you know why he said that? Because most of the people in our culture, when they think about Christians, they think of people that are angry at them. We haven't done a great job of being Jesus to people that need Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm not mad at anybody. Jesus has a lot to teach me anyway about how to engage people that are very different from him. So what are American Christians like? I do see, when I look at, when I look at the landscape of the culture in, in America, I, I feel like so many times as believers, we're leaving our mark as angry people. And we're angry that things are changing all around us in our culture and that we're angry at the people that are responsible. Ed Stetzer came out with a book a couple of months ago called uh, Christians in the Age of Outrage. Has anybody read that yet? I have not. My copy is on the way. should be here tomorrow or Wednesday. Um, but Ed says that as Christians, he says, we are increasingly angry at that things in America are not the way we think they should be. And they're not the way they once were. He says, we, we think that the number of Christians is decreasing in America. He says, uh, none of the surveys indicate that. From Pew Research uh, on down to the more minor ones, none of them indicate that. They've stayed about the same. And so about, he, he holds up four fingers and he says, so let's consider this as 100% of the American population. So 25% of the American population, they're uh, non-believers, irreligious. They have no affiliation whatsoever. They, they may believe in God, but they're, they're not connected with any group. Um, or they may be atheists. And then it says about three-quarters or a little less, three-quarters of the country uh, calls itself Christian. He said, but if you're, if you're a real Christian... You probably don't believe that. You probably don't believe that this many people are real, true Christians, meaning that they live, uh, they live their lives in concert with what God teaches them. He said, the fact of the matter is it's always been about this way. 25% irreligious, 25% really devout Christians. It's the 50% in the middle that call themselves Christians. But what's happening is that 50% is increasingly aligning with the upper 25 in other words, they call themselves Christians, but they are functioning and thinking far more in harmony with this group than with this group. And he says, what's happening as Christians is we are getting angry that, the, that, our, that our land, that our culture, that our um, country is no longer this Christian country. I said it never really was a truly Christian country, but its influence was, Christianity's influence was far more deeply felt in the past than it is today. And so the question is, are we going to, now that we're no longer the home team, to use Stetzer's terminology, are, are, are we going to simply flail at the culture? Are we going to be mad about what's going on or scared about what's going on? The second thing that we're typically seeing with Christians in our culture is an alienation. That is, we're, with, we're uh, withdrawing to our holy huddles, our Bible bubbles, and thus, as a result, being really unable to be salt and light to the culture that God has placed us. How many of you are familiar with the Babylon Bee? A few of you. Babylon Bee is a Christian satirical uh, website. Satire 
is a way of poking fun at ideas that seem to be ridiculous and so forth or uh, kind of caricaturing them. And so what I'm about to read, I've, I've, in the past I've made the mistake of not making satire clear. Uh, what you're about to hear is not true. It's not a true report. Don't get bent out of shape and upset. Um, this is, but it's intended to drive home a point, specifically to our point this morning. So this was about a year ago. Los Angeles, California, local believer Mike Crowder reported Thursday that he is really proud of himself for the way he has selflessly learned to love everyone who is exactly like him. The man has somehow been able to self-sacrificially empathize with and show love and support to people who are nearly identical to him in race, politics, socioeconomic background, and religion throughout his entire life, reports confirmed. Radical, Christ-centered love means respecting and understanding the viewpoints of everyone who already agrees with you, Crowder said in a blog post. It's a long, hard road of giving more and more of yourself, but it's worth it in the end since you can say you've walked in someone else's shoes, which are remarkably similar to your own. According to Crowder, the first step to learning to love like Jesus is to make sure the people you're trying to love meet your, all your requirements by agreeing with you on all your major theological and political issues. And then you can start pouring yourself into their lives. Now, the fact that you're not laughing makes me really nervous. <laughs> Again, let me make my point. This is not true. It's trying to make a point, though. <clears throat> As long as the person meets your criteria, you can start showing them that agape love that Jesus taught us about, he remarked. I'm really good at that. Now, it's not all that funny because how often is that true? Sometimes the things that I read online, whether on social media or in response to blog posts and so forth by people that you know are Christian, like, wow, we, we really have some skills to learn. If we're going to not just <laughs> throw out our opinion and trash other people, but if we're really going to make an impact for Jesus. Jesus did not come and trash the people who needed him. He came and loved them, and he ate dinner with them, and he had conversations with them, and they loved him somehow. Do those people love you and I? Our anger and our alienation, if that's a problem for us, we're essentially demanding that other people be like us or else. We only be friends and acquaintances if we have similar values beliefs, priorities, and opinions. And we don't want to hang around with lost people because, after all, we don't want them to lead us into temptation. We want to keep them away so that they don't unsettle our faith with troubling questions that we might not be able to answer. We want to keep away from those people so that we don't have to rethink our convictions, keep away from them because I don't want to waste my time with an idiot. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe this is the lack of, quote, intellectual humility that some have talked about. Uh, we are right, and we're not about to waste our time listening to people who are wrong. Listen to Proverbs 18:15. Intelligent people are always ready to learn. Their ears are open 
for knowledge. One of the things that we have got to believe if we believe the Bible is that God is still in charge of the world and that God is still in charge of other people's lives and that God works sometimes in spite of us and sometimes because of us and he's big enough to navigate it all. We desperately need to get back into the game of this world and I'm preaching more to Keith than anybody else. We desperately, let me rephrase that, they desperately need us to re-engage, re-engage with this lost world. As I said, today is diagnostic. If this is how Jesus related to people who weren't like him, how do you and I measure up? And so again, I want to ask you a question I asked earlier. If you're a Christian, do you have non-Christian friends? Do you have gay friends? Do you have friends that vote differently from you? Do you have pe- friends with pe- uh, of people who are less, have less money than you do or have more money than you do? Uh, are you friends with people who can make you think better or more clearly and punch holes in your confidence and ask hard questions? Do you have friends who are people who need Jesus? Jesus came from very far to get very close to people that he didn't approve of so that he could save them. Who is it that you need to get closer to, I need to get closer to, and how are we going to do it? And make no mistake about it, if we're going to speak to this culture and speak to the people who are in need of Jesus, it's going to require taking some risks. We're going to need to be willing to listen to people who have views that maybe we despise. Uh, We're going to need to um, maybe risk not knowing the right answers during a disagreement. Maybe even poorly representing our opinion or our faith. Running the risk of looking foolish or losing the debate. Running the risk of somebody getting angry with us. And even running the risk of somebody getting, um, me getting angry at somebody else. I want to close with a, a fascinating story. This took place about four years ago at a California megachurch. And the plan was that they were going to have an atheist who was a professor at Pitzer College in California um, debate a Christian at their church, and they were going to videotape the whole thing. The debate was what provides a better foundation for civil society, Christianity or secular humanism? And the atheist uh, said that the church, he had gave it really high marks for preparation. He said there was, it was very professionally done. They had all the rules clearly laid out, what could and could not be done during the, ba- the debate, what the moderator's role was going to be. He said they paid for all my travel expenses. They gave me a generous honorarium. They had snacks in the green room before the debate. They had even asked him what kind of water he preferred. They told him that their church's uh, expert video video team was going to be filming the whole thing. And um, shortly after the end of the debate, when the editing was all done, they were going to upload the debate uh, onto Vimeo. Had the debate. Everything went well. Uh, Everybody was cordial to each other. The atheist won the debate. Now, that wasn't just his opinion. 
But weeks went by and the video still wasn't showing up on Vimeo. And finally, the professor contacted the pastor at the church and asked him why the video wasn't uploaded yet. And this is what the pastor said. He said it wasn't going to be uploaded. He said, it just didn't go the way we wanted it to. We were not represented well. Now, the church was respectful enough to make sure that the prof had his preferred water, but not respectful enough not to silence his opinions. I can only assume that they thought God wasn't able to weather such a poor showing by his representative. Now, this is the kind of thing that undermines our ability to talk with people that we don't agree with. This is the kind of thing that... Um, creates stereotypes about Christians that makes people think that our faith is very shallow and it can't withstand tough questions and scrutiny. And this is the kind of thing that makes us withdraw more and more into our bubbles and we have less and less of a chance and less and less of an opportunity to impact the people who so desperately need to hear about Jesus. Now, these weeks that we're having these conversations, we're we, everything that we talk about can apply to relationships with our spouse, can reply, uh, apply to relationships with people in the church that we have trouble getting along with. But I really think that if we can learn to get along with people who don't know Jesus, we can do a lot better at those other things as well. In other words, the greatest challenge may be for people that are far from God, who have strong opinions that are contrast to us. The professor, when he talked with some people at the college about what was, had taken place, one of the people said to him, she said, clearly, professor, you don't know a lot about evangelicals. That's us. Oh, sure, they're very nice. But if you say anything that goes against their party line, you're out. They can't handle debate. They can't handle real dialogue. It doesn't surprise me that all, at all that they won't show the video. And the professor wrote this. He says, I don't think that all evangelicals are like those at such and such a church. I am sure that there are many, many evangelical Christians who keep their word, who are open to debate and dialogue, and have the courage of their convictions. So I love that the church took the initiative to do what they did. I love that the Christian was willing to participate in the debate that did. I love that the Christian was willing to treat his adversary well during the debate. What I hate is that the church broke its promise and conveyed it would only talk with people outside of their camp if they could win. They could not trust God enough to let the chips fall where they may. I think that's why Jesus is unique in how he interacted with sinners. He had complete and total trust in his heavenly father. He didn't have to run away from them. He didn't have to prematurely force certain things into the conversation with them. He didn't worry about losing a debate. He didn't worry about looking dumb. He simply went to them, loved, to them, loved them, and spoke to them. And we can do that, can't we? Let's pray. Father, I, I am convicted the older I get the more I realize how comfortable I prefer to be with my own kind. And that's a tragedy.
where Jesus came to anything but his own kind in the sense that he was perfectly righteous and none of us were. And he died to save us, but not just to save us so that we could withdraw. In fact, in his closing moments before he was arrested and went to the cross, he said to his disciples, and by extension to us who are, I'm sending you to the world. Just as my father sent me to the world, I send you to the world. And part of that being sent is learning to navigate different ideas and different values, different thoughts, uh, different perceptions, different convictions. And I pray that our faith and trust in you would grow and grow and grow in such a way that people don't have to be like us. They don't have to be like me in order for me to talk with them, in order for me to enjoy a meal with them, in order for me to have a conversation with them that might, might be hard for me because I hear things I don't like to hear and I put in positions I don't like to be put in. I even have to question things that maybe were settled for me long ago. I pray that you would deepen our faith in you so that those kinds of things don't throw us off and they that they don't deter us from going to the world that we've been sovereignly placed into to love and to leave a mark for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.